plants thrive and grow in a peaceful, nourished environment, right? Well, it's the same with human beings. But what if that environment is not so peaceful? What if it's toxic? Welcome to Coffee Break, breaking the cycle of bullying in healthcare, one cup at a time. In this podcast, you'll get practical, evidence-based strategies to help you cultivate and sustain a healthy and respectful work culture by tackling an age-old problem in healthcare, bullying and incivility. I am your host, Dr. Renee Thompson. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Coffee Break Podcast. As you know, bullying and incivility happen because they can, and it really takes dedicated leaders like you to put a stop to it. And that's what this podcast is all about, giving you practical tools and strategies to help you to stop it. And today, we're going to talk about, drumroll, conflict. And I have the privilege of interviewing a conflict expert who happens to be a good friend and colleague of mine, Randy Kern. Randy, welcome to Coffee Break. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Me too. All right. Officially, Randy is a training professional with over 30 years experience in fire services and healthcare. He currently serves as a district chief and EMS division chief in Pinellas County, Florida, where I live too. He served as the department's training officer for more than 11 years and was honored as the 2010 State of Florida Fire Service Instructor of the Year. Now, (laughs) while working full-time, Randy also worked for, he was an emergency department nurse, and he worked in an ICU in both adult and pediatric hospitals. His company, Fully Involved Consulting, actually specializes in achieving results in the area of effective communication, conflict management, leadership development, and cultural transformation through training, facilitating, and coaching. And I always, when I talk about Randy, I always say he's like the coolest guy I've ever met. Not only does he work for the fire department, he is also, you're doing some work, Randy, right? On on the waters. I know that you're like a boat captain or you do something there and he hikes all over the world. So Randy, tell us a little bit more about that, your other adventures. I've had a pretty great career, both in healthcare and in the fire service, but it's, so to speak, the last chapter for that part of my life, for most of my life, I, it was who I really, it defined me. But right. trying to figure out what's next, and one of the things I was playing around with is being a boat captain or something like that, and that led, I, I think nurses by nature were in, in service, so that led to me getting into auxiliary for the Coast Guard. Yeah. And like I, I like I needed more things on my plate, but I really enjoy it. And now I've been there a couple of years. I'm the member training officer already. And it's I just love doing that. It is just so cool. And all of your adventures and other countries and all the hikes that you've done overseas and, and even the volunteer work that you have done. Again, I always say Randy's the coolest guy that I know. He does so many different things. And the fact that you're a nurse and can do all these other things is, I think, just a blessing. So thank you for all of your great adventures, and you inspire me. And you asked about the adventures, and the funny thing is I say I'm a hike. I'm, I'm not a hiker that hikes. Okay. I'm a big guy, 
I'm a big guy and physically hiking is extremely difficult. And the experience requires it. I do travel a number of countries and hikes, many long distances hikes from 100 miles to 600 miles. Every, usually every year I go someplace for a long hike and it's just me, my backpack and by myself or with a friend. It's great to disconnect. It's great to disconnect, get in nature, be present again, unwind, everything. Yeah. And stopping off coffee shops and wine doesn't hurt either. I have my coffee here, so I yes. hear you. Maybe that's how you actually can then do all these things because you take time for yourself. And as you said, you disconnect. So I, I think it's great. Like I said, I sometimes find myself living vicariously through you. So appreciate you. And I'm really curious to know, and I'm sure our listeners are too, how did you get involved in conflict management? How did you really tap into this topic and become the expert that you are? You mentioned I had really, I have two career paths. I started both in the hospital setting at 18 and also the fire department at 18. So I was a firefighter EMT and started my career, but also I worked at a local ER as a ER tech. So I've had two parallel careers for most of a big portion of my life. But really the leadership work is was in the fire department because I was always a pool nurse, resource nurse, whatever you want to call it, throughout my career. And my experience as a leader is really where I, I found my lesson, so to speak. We have a tendency to teach the things we stumble upon. Like I know a little bit about your background too, right? We yep. suddenly get thrown into the situation. We're like, oh, wow. And I had prepared for years to become a leader. And my goal was not necessarily to be in charge. My goal was really, I love training and I wanted to develop people. And really as the company officer, it's their primary role is to develop people. And the first month was fantastic. Things were going wonderful. And about a month in, I'm running around micromanaging because I think that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And my, again, let me, little context. I'm in my mid twenties. And most of my crew were in their 30s and 40s. So I'm, I'm the young guy, and now I'm telling everybody what to do. I'm micromanaging, which I definitely lacked some leadership skills back then. And one of my most senior firefighters was not doing what he needed to do, check the truck out, check out the paramedic equipment. And so I walked over to him, and he was just hanging out with a friend I didn't know. And I said, hey, John, I really need you to start doing your work. And he was sitting on the bumper of the engine, and he slowly stood up. John is six foot five, and he looked down at me. Also, a little preface, he's probably the most recognized, most people just adored him. He was an introvert, very tall. He didn't say much, but when he spoke, people just really admired him. He was really Mm -hmm. an informal leader of the organization. And he stood up and just looked down at me and said, go do it yourself. Whoa. So you were his boss while quote unquote boss, okay? Yeah, absolutely. And I stood there and I just had my mouth open and I'm looking up at him and I'm thinking, I I, I just got punched in the face. That's what it felt like. I felt like I got hit by a car or something. I just did not see it coming. And I'm looking at him, and then I look at the, the person that was there I didn't know. And they're looking at me like, what are you going to do? My mouth was just open, and I just stood there and looked up at him until it got so uncomfortable, I turned around and walked away. Wow. Okay. So I walked back to the office and said, I got to go back. I got to say something. I got to do something. I didn't know what to say in the moment, and I didn't know what to say an hour later, and two hours later, and three hours later, and then I'll talk to him next shift, and I'll talk to him next shift. Now, unfortunately for him, he ended up getting injured and went off the job, so I really never had that conversation, which would be an easy conversation. Yeah, it'd be an easy conversation now, but at the time, I didn't see it coming. All my prep work was really on building people up. I just, conflict was not my thing. 
till it had to be. And about a week later, we didn't talk, but did he talk, right? The nurses talked, the firemen talked. Yeah, the whole organization knew that. I don't know if they knew specifically what happened, but their belief in me as this well-respected person that got promoted. And there's a lot more story why I was respected because of my education and training that, that I did so much of. But they, they didn't believe in me anymore. And about a week you later- lost your credibility. Completely. And mm-hmm. not only John, but the rest of the crew started treating me different. And about a week later, I got called in the office with a line of chiefs, right? That's not a good meeting. Nope. And I thought I was going to get demoted about <clears throat> within a couple months being promoted and spending all those years preparing. And my chief said, hey, you got to find a way. And I literally started pursuing a way. And that's led me to where I am now. Long story, sorry. Wow. No, that's so incredible because I you've never shared this with me before, but it makes total sense. And I think a lot of us get to the point where if we're considered extremely knowledgeable about something or an expert in something, like even the work that I do with bullying and incivility, I'm considered the expert. It usually comes from a place of pain first, where, and I tell my story where I was this unit manager, new to leadership, new to the organization, had a group of employees that I had never seen people behave that way, you know, so-called adult professionals. And I was so ill-equipped. I had no idea how to handle their bad behavior. And I quit after a year and felt like a failure for a long time until I, like you, I figured it out. And now it sounds like we're on parallel paths where we're both on a mission to help other people, help other leaders. And you deal with conflict and help them manage it better and me with the bullying. But they're very similar paths, not only personally, but also bullying and incivility. Sometimes it shows up as conflict and sometimes conflict shows up as bullying and incivility. So I'd love to know from you. And so many people are to say confused, but they're not clear on what conflict truly is or conflict management. So could you talk a little bit about that? Can you help us to define that a little bit better? Yeah, the conflict broad topic, I'm actually probably spend more energy on focusing where I put my energy. So when I talk about conflict management for me, I'm my primary sweet spot to help people with because when you think about me in that moment, right? I'm a manager or a supervisor and I'm managing a team or a crew. And you have to deal with the things that show up. Your conflict's inevitable. It's going to happen. And how do you effectively have them acknowledge what's going on, have them own the problem, have them create a solution that solves the problem. So I'm really focused on performance management, I would say is the the buzzword. But it's not only that, because the other aspect of my work is people that are struggling. Like people come with baggage to work, right? And I don't solve their problems, but it's interfering with their ability to do their job. They still own it, but it's helping them become better. One of the things I see is unfortunate is a lot of times people don't say anything or they pass the buck, right? The person gets in trouble, then you assign them to another unit. That yeah. helped. And, <laughs> and you know, I, I'll never forget, I got an employee that was known throughout the department for being difficult. I'm a new officer and they gave him to me and said, fix him. I'm like, sure. you didn't fix him five years ago. <laughs> There's a whole other story. I actually did make impact with him, huge impact with him. But that's a whole other story. Right. But you can. It, it's really helping people. Part of the thing I think I help them do is realize the problem they keep on this path, what's going to happen. Yeah. Now, I really am there to help and support them. 
And just as an example, in my role, I oversee about 65 people. Sometimes people don't make it, right? Sometimes their career gets ended and because of different reasons. But every person that's left because they, I supported them every way I possibly could. They just couldn't get out of their own way for some reason or another. Okay. And they had to, you know, leave the organization. Every person that's ever been let go of our organization has hugged me and thanked Wow. Okay. That's so pretty not powerful. Show up with the, I don't, it's my attitude when I show up there. I'm here to help you become better, but you have to own this. You have to take responsibility. You have to be accountable. You have to do it. And then, you know, I'll help you support any way I can, but at the end, they own it. And we can't own their problem. That was a huge one for me because when I was owning their problem, I had upset, I had headaches. I had upset stomachs. And sure. I was sick. I, that was the only time in my career I didn't want to go to work is when I had my issue with John. But once I learned, it's not my problem, they need to deal with it. And I learned a way to have them own it. It really started changing things. I think that's the key because I talked to so many leaders who, to your point, I will support you. I will help you. I will give you education. Do you, you know, what do you need? But then they don't know how to then shift it to, I will do my part. Mm -hmm. However, you have to do your part. And I think leaders get caught in that trap where they think they have to own their problems. Okay. That employee's problems help them with those problems and are almost afraid, I think, to step aside and say, okay, now, this is the part that you own. And if you're not capable or you're not sure. willing to, we're done here. And I think that's the missing piece when it comes to, and I hate to say managing a difficult employee, but I hear this all the time. I, I remember talking to a leader who said, okay, there's this one employee and she acts out and people complain about her. So she has to have a sit down with her. And then she behaves for four, five, mm -hmm. six weeks. And then she's back in her office and the same pattern over and over again. And then I asked her this question, how many meetings have you had with her? How long have you been in this cycle? And she thought about it and she said, over a year and a half. Yeah. And I said, okay, now, so to your point, you cross the line, the employee's not owning it. So how do you do that as a leader? How do you know either set that expectation up front? Or how do you know when you're at that moment that you have to say, I've done all I can, the rest is up to you? I think, and again, that's my approach is I have a coaching conversation. And what I mean by that is I ask the questions and let them answer them. And one of the, I think one of the struggles we have in conflict management leaders is we're problem solvers, yes. right? You're late to work every shift. I'll tell you how to fix that. No, you won't. You could tell them they buy another alarm clock. You could tell them to leave earlier. You can tell all that. But then the next day when they get up, they overslept, they have to get the kids to school. One of the big shifts that have to happen, I think is critical in this element is accountability. Now, when we talk about holding someone accountable, that's external. Okay. But you think about performance management. What's the best accountability? Internal. Right. So how do I ask you a question so you, you own it? Not only the problem, but also the solution. Now, Renee, if I ask you if you to do something and you tell me you're going to do it, are you going to do it? Yes. Absolutely. Now, 100%. if I tell you what, exactly, that's accountability. It's right. internal. But if I tell you what to do, what's our success rate? Is it still 100? It depends on if I want to do it or if I see the value of it or if it's, an, yeah, it, there, there are some variables there. There you go. And that's the variables, right? I want them. That's one of the things when I create a plan. I want 100% belief that they own it. They're going to do what they say they're going to do. 
I do define the expectation. You asked about the expectation, right? And I define it in a big picture way, future focus, what success looks like, okay? You're rude to Mrs. Smith. The expectation is here is we give outstanding customer service. Next time you interact with Mr. Smith or anybody like Mrs. Smith, you're going to treat him with the utmost respect, right? That's, we have rules and guidelines around that. But I leave it big picture and success focus on it for a reason. Because my next question is, what are you going to do to create that experience? That's where the ownership comes in. Sure. They, they have to be part. We know from neuroscience, autonomy is huge, right? I don't care if you're a kid or an adult. You want choice. And when you take away choice, your, your success is going to decrease. So it's a coaching conversation. It's funny, when I started this, I looked at my own process and I mapped it out. It was, let me backstep on this because this is really, I want to kudos, I want to shout out to a shout out for somebody. When I was struggling with the fire department as a leader, I went to my director of nursing at the hospital I was working at. At the time, I think I was doing some ICU work or something or ER, either one. But I went to my director of nursing and I said, hey, I'm struggling with conflict. And I showed up with a stack of index cards of conflicts that I could see. Wow. And I remember I, I handed Kathy the stack of index cards. She goes, yep, dealt with that yesterday. Yep, dealt with that last <laughs> week. And she's just flipping through the index cards, right? Yeah. And she's these are nothing to her, right? Nothing. And I said, I need help on figuring this out. And she goes, let's role play it. And it was late to work. And I had just bumbled through it. And it was horrible. I had nothing. It was nothing. And she goes, let's switch. And then she role played me. This was an actual conflict she just had minutes earlier with a nurse that was late, always late every shift. And it set the foundation for the conversation to how to fix this. And I've I went on, got advanced training in conflict, went on, became a coach, took some mediation, a couple of mediation trainings, but really all comes down to that core conversation. Yeah. You, first of all, you have to have the conversation, share what was wrong and with, the, with the mindset, we're going to get through this and make this better and then hear them out fully, but then define the expectation, but then gauge them in the, the problem solving. Okay. Yeah. I think that's, you said it, you have to get input from them. They have to be a part of it. One of the things that we do with uh, many of our clients is we create what we call a compact of professional behaviors. This is how we treat each other in this space. And it's not just the leaders coming up with the list of behaviors, because I always say that's your code of conduct that you have at your organization. And every, everybody has that. No, this is specific to your department. And what we do is we bring the entire team together and we ask them, how do you always want to be treated by each other? How do you never want to be treated by each other? And you get their input and then you collate, you look for themes, and then you have a one-page document that basically says, this is how we treat each other here. So that when somebody is acting out, when somebody is being disrespectful, you can pull out that compact. And it's not what Randy, as the leader, says. No, what happened? We agreed that we wouldn't behave this way, you did not honor our agreement. So it takes it away from, I think, the leader's shoulders because you said it, the leaders are problem solvers. I know I'm guilty of that. I always feel like I have to solve the problem, but it takes, it actually, by getting input from your employees, they're more likely to take ownership of it. Not 100% guarantee, but they're more likely. I totally agree. First of all, uh, I've done a lot of work with team contracts, but 
the root of all of it came down to a story I like to share. I'll give you the short version of it, but it really illustrates what you just said. Years ago, I had the opportunity to be a volunteer nurse at Boggy Creek. It's outside Orlando. It's a camp for medical ill kids. So they have cardiac weeks and different weeks. So I went to a cardiac week and my job was to be the nurse. So we have 15 kids, I think, and they were ages like 12, 10 to 12 years old, 15 kids. And we were in a beautiful, Bucky Creek's amazing. It's a nonprofit. They have lake, horses. They have the fire pit and this, they have everything. They had, the pool was put in by SeaWorld. Wow. At Magic, Orlando Magic put in the basketball court, full stadium, or enclosed gym. Just amazing place. But anyways, I'm there as a nurse for that week. And we had some kids on IVs and feeding tubes and things like that and medications and stuff. So I was the cabin nurse. We had an 18-year-old counselor that was actually in charge. So this is 24 hours a day for a week. And the first thing he did is said, hey, kids, write your rules for the week. We'll be outside. And I thought, what a waste of time, right? I'm the know-it-all supervisor with experience. Sure. <laughs> and these kids came out and they had a list of rules and they gave them to me. And I literally wanted to grab them and throw them away. Wow. Because they were so strict. And I just thought these kids need to have fun. But I said, you know what? They're their rules. This is what they chose. Now, do you think they broke any rules? They're 10 and 12-year-old kids. And yeah, let me tell I you the rule. Yes. They had a curfew. Pick up their dirty clothes, make their bed, brush their teeth, no cussing, no fighting, etc. There's a whole laundry list of rules. And did they break any rules? Yes. But how many times did I have to speak to them in that week? Any guess? Uh, I would say... Zero. I'm going to give you the answer. It's yep. zero. <laughs> you stumped me. It was the biggest leadership lesson of my life, I swear. Because here you are for an entire week, 24 hours a day, 10 to 12-year-olds that picked up their clothes. They didn't. If they did something, they would either, when they got called out by their peers, they would either own it or they would be, they either say, hey, my bad, and they would own it, or they'd be reminded from an entire group that this is our commitment. Wow. So they came up with the rules. They came, just what you just said. They, and again, I, when I do team contracts, I do not include the leader. I have the leader facilitate the process. Right. But I 100% believe in them. I think they're, they're, they have to be lived. That's the only thing is most teams create them and then they can't even find them on the bulletin board or so to speak, exactly. right? Mm-hmm. They have to be lived to be effective. And it's great. It is a great tool. It's something that is our standard it's one of the ways that we hardwire and sustain a healthy work culture is that we have this document, but it can't just be a piece of paper that you post to a bulletin board. And so what we then do is work on how do you make it a living and breathing document? And that's where you get your people involved and in taking a look at maybe one commitment or one rule a month. And you focus on that and you talk about it and you do some skill development with it because one of our big things is we talk to each other, not about each other. Right. That direct communication instead of all the gossiping and passive aggressive behaviors. If I've never been able to talk to you before, Randy, what makes you think because you have it on a piece of paper that all of a sudden magically I know how to do that? And by, first of all, having your team come up with the rules as these kids did, But then how do you make them living and breathing and ongoing and provide the training and the skill development that they need to really honor them? And I think what you said was beautiful. It was the kids started holding each other accountable. It wasn't just 
the boss. It was... Or they held themselves accountable. Hey, I forgot right. to do this. My bad. Yeah. So if 10 and 12-year-olds can do this, why can't adult professionals do this? This is our lives. Every single day, I'm talking to leaders about the conflict situations that they get in with their employees. But okay, this is giving me maybe some hope that if Again, 10 and 12 year olds can do this. We can help. After, I'll be honest, after I came back, I, I did it with my own kids. I, I let them yep. you know, decide their nightly routine because it was a nightmare for us. But during bedtimes, getting them in the bath, getting them out of the bath, all that stuff. And plus, they want you to read. It's getting late. Having them set up the nightly routine, again, autonomy, it works. Yeah, it's interesting. I always tell the people who we're working with, we give them all these strategies. And I always say, these work in your personal life too. The scripting that we do, it works in your personal life. Randy, there, there's something that comes up a lot with the leaders we work with. And that is, all right, classic situation. You have two employees who aren't getting along and there's some conflict and there's maybe some arguing and it's going on and you get caught in a he said, she said. A lot of the leaders will say, okay, I'm going to bring them in together. We're going to do mediation. And there's some confusion on, on what mediation is, when is when mediation is more likely to be successful. Because what I always say, if it's a bullying situation, mediation does not work as well because you may have just given that bully more ammunition against the target. But can you just talk a little bit about mediation? Because I know you had mentioned it earlier and you and I have talked about mediation in the past. So, yeah, absolutely. So mediation, what it is, it's really it's a third party person moderating a conversation. Really, mm -hmm. I think really a, the most important thing about all this is have the conversation. But their job is the not a referee, but just make sure you stay on track and, and you're third party, there's little things you can do to help them have a conversation and try to solve the problem. Mediation is fantastic. So a couple thoughts. First of all, it has to be appropriate, okay? If you have two people that work together and they normally get along and there's suddenly something going on and it's not going away, that's probably a great opportunity to have a mediation, okay? So this is not reaching a, like a critical, like when you say bullying, if it's higher level it's already escalated. If it's already escalated, I would have someone mediate that really knows what they're doing. <laughs> or, if, but again, if it's is it both parties or is it really a bullying individual? You got to right. decide what's right. But so think about low, maybe medium level conflict. Two people again. We all have disagreements, and it's a good opportunity for them to bring them together for a conversation. The process is easy. I, well, the only thing that I, I would really have people to consider, are you confident in doing this? Yeah. Because if you, it, it could go bad. Now, my experience, it hasn't, but I also know I'm confident in the process. It's super simple. So you have a conversation with both parties, find out what's going on. Okay. Separately at first? Separately at first. Okay. Okay. Yep. And decide, you know, fact finding, find out if, if it's mediations at right. Okay. The first conversation, I was, the conflict I was talking about, I was really talking about individual performance management and how to have that conversation. This conversation, check with both of them, find out, is it one person? Is it the other? Is it a combination? But if a mediation is right at that point, you're going to schedule a time. Now, this is interesting. This would probably freak people out, but like schedule three hours. Like, why would you schedule three hours? Because we're not leaving here until it's dissolved. <laughs> So let them know you're serious. It's like now, being a juror, right? In a trial. Yeah, at least. Now, my experiences with my mediations, they go really quick. Yeah. And I've had 
some people just deadlocked, again, getting people around them to support them and all that nonsense. And they really resolved themselves pretty quickly, the ones I've done. And, and again, I'm also mediating at my level. It escalates, and that's another can of worms. Determining if this mediation is appropriate, schedule a time, tell both parties you're going to come together, we're going to resolve it, okay? Once you get them together, the room setup is helpful. You can have a table where they face each other, and then you can okay. sit on the side, just like you would in, in real mediation, and then give them the ground rules. And my interpretation of the ground rules is no fight or no flight. So no fight. You can't threaten, you can't coerce. But no flight. You're not leaving here until we solve this problem. Okay? And it's, are the rules clear? Yep. Okay. Here's what we have to solve today. And this is where you define the expectation of success. All right? The two of you are not getting along. The, the reason we're here is you're not getting along. The outcome that we need to produce is the two of you have to agree on how you're going to work together in a professional manner and maybe even meet the guidelines or standards that you have. Okay? And then you welcome one of them to start and what they're going to do, maybe they're silent, maybe they get started, but they're going to want to look at you and plead their case. And you got to say, I'm going to ask you to have the conversation with them and to help facilitate that, which is really difficult, a little art to it. When the person over here is talking to my right, I'm actually looking at the person to the left. Ah. Because if you make eye contact, they'll keep making eye contact. So you don't get an opportunity. They won't the other person. So you actually look at the listener while they're talking. That goes against, I think, all of us. And somebody's looking at us talking to us. We want to look back at them. But I see your point. Yeah, look at the other person because that's who they Yeah, you actually on. look away from the speaker, which is not normal. But as a mediator, you look at the listener. You're going to listen to the speaker. Or you really want to look at them just so they don't. Because if not, they're going to keep making eye contact with you. Once they know the routine, they start having a conversation and not engaging you. Then you could probably look back at the listener again. But sure. To help facilitate that initially, you're probably going to have to look at the listener. And again, warning, people could get angry. They can elevate their voice. They could say things that they believe or heard or something. The success of mediation often comes from fatigue. And they're like, I, we give up. Okay, you win. Yeah, it's really bizarre. But unless people are really want to solve this and it's going to go for a little bit, fatigue is usually what kicks in. And somebody will finally like, okay, I'll give in a little bit. And then you get into the law of reciprocity. You give in a little bit, maybe I'll give in. Or and again, people might be cautious. Yeah, you're just saying that. You don't mean it. But once that one of these barriers break down and it usually softens enough, that I don't, I try, your number one job is just to sit there and listen and make sure the rules are followed. Now, as the leader, should you, if they really start arguing with each other, do you intervene? Do you say, time out, guys, or, or if they're talking over each other, what do you do? No, I, I would let it go. As long as it's not threatening or coercion, okay. right? Not, they're not getting up to leave. Because it's, here's the reality. It's an emotional reason that they're upset. It's not unheard of to have an emotional conversation about why you're upset. So if you expect people to have a calm, collective conversation when True. Your best friend for five years, they believe you did something wrong to them. They're going to be upset. They might cry. They might get loud. They might, you, and again, that's why you have to be comfortable with this process. But my Ooh. experience, it's always been really effective because they get to talk it out, which is really the problem. They're not talking. 
but they also have in the back of their mind, they can't leave here till they solve it together. Now, do you ever have to remind them, especially if somebody gets up and they say, this isn't working, and you remind them, hey, wait a minute, we agreed, two roles. Yeah. If, I, a lot, what's going to be the next step? This is, this is probably going to have to escalate then. You want somebody else solving this or you guys want to solve it yourself? Ooh, no, that's good. That's a good, well, I'm big on scripts. To have yeah. that ready to go if that happens. I always think, what if, is to say, you want this to escalate and let somebody else take care of it? Or are you going to yep. handle this yourselves? Like, we're here yeah. right now. Let's, yeah, get it, yeah. get her done. Well, you have the opportunity to create a solution that you both agree to, or you have yes. the opportunity to let somebody else decide. And, and one or both of you are probably not going to be happy. This is true. Wow. And, and you're right. I think a lot of leaders, for them to get to the point where they're comfortable sitting there and letting that all unfold, because I know, honestly, I would have trouble with that. I would want to intervene. And I think a lot of leaders, because we are problem solvers, we want to tell them what to do and <laughs> fix the problem. But if you really want a successful outcome, you need to let them figure out the solution so that you're not always the one who has to come up with the solutions to all of their problems. Yeah, that's really why I'm so big in, in conflict coaching, the coaching conversation. Like the first part I didn't get into it specifically, but when I first analyzed my process, I had 10 steps and then I shortened it and shortened it. And I got it down to like really just a couple steps now to have a coaching conversation. So I'm going to go back to the performance management if I could. Sure. Yeah, please. So mediation, that, that's it. That was really wrapped up anyways. But I never got to share my conversation element that I teach. Have, first thing, I call it clear, okay? Clear prescription. The first thing is identify the conflict. Just simply state what's wrong. And don't just say, we had a, a customer complaint. It's been brought to my attention that you did this. You were late today. Just say what was happened. Most people know what happened. They know what, what happened. It's not usually a surprise to them. And then ask them, for their input, what's more, what happened, or wanted to hear what you thought, your thoughts on this, or whatever. Just get them speaking about what it right. is, because one of the things is you really need to understand what the real problem is, because the reality is the real problem is not always the real problem. And by listening to them, one, neuroscience, they'll feel more connected. Again, I want that bonding for us to work together to try to solve this. But the other thing I listen for is what was the underlying cause? Because it's not always just bad performance. Maybe it was miscommunication, right? It was maybe a communications issue. Maybe it was a capability issue, right? I had two places to be at the same time. I can't do that, right? Or is it a compliance issue, right? That is a performance problem. But I try to listen for what really is the problem because then that helps define success, the expectation. First step, conflict. Second step, listen. Third step, expectation. What does success look like? You're rude to Mrs. Smith. I expect you to offer fantastic customer service. You're late to work. I expect you to be here on time. Simple, right? So far, identify the conflict, yep. hear them out, define the yep. expectation, then ask them, so what are you going to do to solve this? And that's the actions, right? What? And here's the key. Expectations, big picture, actions, behavioral level, right? I'll be here on time. I'll be nice to Mrs. Smith. What are you going to do what would I see you doing to get here on time? What would I see you doing to be nice to Mrs. Smith? Because I want to get down to behavioral level. There's not going to be any question on the actions you're going to take to solve this. 
Yeah, okay. and I think that's probably the missing piece with a lot of conversations leaders have with their teams is what, yeah. and I love it, what are basically you going to do? It's not me telling you what you're going to do. One of my officers, he was all excited, came to me like a couple, they say two weeks ago, and he had a conversation with a, a with someone's just not stepping up for a new employee and said what was wrong to find the expectation. And he said it was a wonderful conversation. I was so happy, so happy because he needs to have more conversations like this and he doesn't. So I was so happy. And then we document just for, it's not punitive, it's just a coaching session. And he gave me the paperwork and the employee says, I will do better. That's it. What, is, what exactly? What does that it's completely mean? up to open the interpretation? <laughs> when we had specific behaviors we were lacking, he had an opportunity to identify specific behaviors that would have worked. And he didn't capture those. And he just let the employee say, I'll do better. And that was the plan. And I said, that doesn't work. You can't I, I measure need to know better. And when you get down to behavioral level, one, they're very clear what they need to do to solve it. And they came yep. up with it. And if they don't come up with it, I prompt them. What would I see? What would I hear? And it just makes it very clear on the actions. The last step I know going on, review, right? Clear. So conflict, we listen, we define expectation. They define their actions they're going to take and review. I review the plan we have and, and the anticipated success, but special sauce, I also tell them what's going to happen if they don't live up to the plan they created. Now, that came about by accident when I had someone get in trouble and they came back and got in trouble again. They were looking at time off in our policy and they were so upset. I said, I'm never going to let that happen again. When you get in trouble, we're going to make a plan, but I'm also going to tell you what happens next. And I truly believe anecdotally, and also I believe more than that, is that uh, the uh, consequence of not living up to your plan, knowing what's going to happen next is a huge motivator, right? Yeah. You look at the behavioral modification research, the most powerful impact on antecedent behavior consequences is what drives you know, I know. And then RX, clear RX. RX is simply what do you document? And that's clear. What the conflict was, what they said, what the expectation was, what actions they agreed to, anticipated results, and what's going to happen if they don't live up to those results. I should have said that earlier in the program, but uh, <laughs> I just wanted to get that. And I like one thing I like is you said be practical based. Yeah. And you could think, what's the conflict and what's the outcome I want? Then go up and have that conversation. That's all you need. Those two little things. I, I you and I were talking earlier and I said, I, I love a framework. That's one of the things yeah. I have a, a, a coach, a business coach. And one of the things I love about him is that every time I come to him with a problem or something I'm working on, he is so quick to give me a framework. I will follow frameworks all day and all night because it's easier and my brain doesn't have to work as hard. And what you've given our listeners, Randy, is a framework. I love the practicality of it. And it's something actually, now after this podcast, I'm going to listen to it and then make sure I write it all down so that I can use it too. And I think it's a good framework that I can use with my the leaders who I'm coaching. I'll say this is the Randy Kern framework. I'll, I'll I have to name it. Yeah, there, we'll have to come up with it. I'll send it to you. All right, that would be helpful. Thank you. And I was—I usually like to end with what's one action that leaders listening to us right now can take if they want to start getting better at managing conflict. Can you think of just one action, Randy? One daily action that I found just incredibly useful, and it's not just for conflict; it's for everything. It's all because you know, conflict. 
It's a type of problem. When people come to you and they ask you a question, one of the most powerful things I figured out years ago is most people are not seeking an answer. They're actually seeking validation. And so people come to you with a problem, and again, that problem could be conflict. When they come to you with a problem, ask them, like, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, what, what are some options? What can we do? Now, as a leader, you always have the opportunity to solve that problem. But I think when you start doing that approach, you'll find that they already have the answer. They just need validation to do it. They're closest to the problem. They're closest to the answer. Okay. So again, what I'm, t- what I'm sharing now is really a concept. It's a coaching concept. Sure. People problems. Start asking them questions. What's going on? What's yeah. the, what do we need to, what's the, one of my favorite things, it's so simple, but it's such a great concept. Where are we at? Where do we need to go? How are we going to get there? Yep. We just did this the it's, other day with my team. It was like, okay, what, you know, where are we? Where do we need to be? Yeah. What's the gap in between and how are we going to yep. get there? Yes. It's, so simple. It's so it, In coaching, that's what we do. It's all forward focused, right? Where are you at now? What's the goal? Where, where are we going? How are we going to get there? Mm-hmm. And again, those are questions, right? And if you actually look at my clear model, it's built in. Oh, absolutely. What's the, what's the conflict? What's the expectation? What are the actions you're going to take to solve it? Yeah. I, I think everybody listening is probably, if they can, writing this down. And I wanted to let you all know that um, if you want to connect with Randy after this podcast airs, we're going to have um, his LinkedIn profile, his email address, and he's been generous enough to allow us to include that in the show notes. And Randy does this for a living too. He goes into organizations and he really helps their really train the leadership team in managing conflict. So make sure that you connect with Randy. He's just an, an all around amazing expert and has a lot of really great insights into conflict and and people management. And as I said earlier, and he's a super cool guy too. So as um, we wrap up, Randy, I always like to ask my guests if they could let us know maybe a a book that they're reading right now and maybe a book that they would recommend that leaders read. This is for, most of my books are for a purpose. So I've I've actually, I love reading and I only have a couple of audio books. This one is an audio book. I think I got it while I was traveling one time. I wanted to hear it. It's called Never Split the Difference. Chris Voss, he is a, one of the top FBI negotiators. And I'm actually glad I got this one in audio book because he's talking about bank robberies and hostage negotiations and, and things like that. But it's really, he does a lot more than just Actually, a lot of the philosophies he has, I actually incorporated into my own training. I was pretty happy to learn that. But I still continue to learn from him. Your voice inflection, your mirroring. And again, it's all used for the purpose of being good, right? And helping people. Sure. But I continue to learn from him and I'm revisiting the mirroring aspect, which I still don't do real well. And it's not just the body language, it's actually the words. So repeating the last couple of words in a sentence is a real way of connecting with people. Because I want to break down any barrier, because you're upset potentially and you're coming in for conflict. I want to break down any barrier and make a quick connection. Right. That's why I want to really listen to you to have you feel more connected with me so we can work together. And that's, again, I think that's why that success of people hugging me on the way out the door, you know, I've never had anybody not uh, thank me for all the support. And wow. I tried to help them. You know, I really did. But your intentions were clear. You wanted them to right. be successful. 
they weren't. However, that didn't mean that your intent wasn't pure and good. And I think when yeah. people see that, they, they recognize and appreciate it. I'll definitely have to put that one on my list. It sounds really interesting. The type of book He's that amazing. I like to read. Yeah. Now, I was going to say his, his name sounds familiar. I'm wondering if I've seen something or read something of his before. But is there anything else that you would recommend that leaders read? I just, it's funny. I, before this, I got here, I was thinking about that. And I'm looking at my shelf. And I got about four foot of, of conflict books. And this is a little nostalgic. It's a little bit me, but I developed my program. And then I started thinking, you know, I did it for years and years for free just to help people. And, but then I started having people want me to pay me. And then it's, then I, then I felt like an imposter. So I, I connected with the center of conflict dynamics and right here locally, I was blessed that it was right here locally. And the director at the time, his book just really helped me connect knowing I was doing the right thing. So this is, it was very, this, these are kind of selfish books, but Becoming Conflict Competent, that he's done several of these books by Craig Rundy and Tim Flanagan, but Craig was a, turned out to be a great friend as, when he was director of the center. And that really helped just give me the confidence that what I was doing was right. Because before that, it was just all made up. This is more... Winging it or it was organic. Yeah. And it, almost, Randy, it circles back to what you said. What they did was they gave you validation. Yeah. And I'm certified in a lot of instruments, but the center also has a conflict dynamics profile that I use all the time. Really one of the best instruments I've ever used. Thousands of instruments out uh, that I've used and just... On that one, it's just fantastic. The second one, it's funny, they're all tabbed too. Dan Dana, he created the uh, M Mediation Training Institute. And now mm. it's all connected to Ecker College too. And then I had the Supreme Court mediation in, in the Florida. I took that, but I also took his program, which was phenomenal, uh, Workplace Mediation. So that's really good book. And the last book that caught my attention was this one. It's called Making Conflict Work. Mm. And I met the uh, author of this one too. And I'm, I'm luckily through the Center of Conflict Dynamics and, and the uh, conferences we've had there, I've met all these. But his I like because it talked about the power power dynamics, the power over and power under, yeah, which is really neat because most of my initial conflict was power over because I'm supervisor subordinate. But this one gets into power under, power over. How That's do you manage up? So understanding that dynamic, I thought was really fascinating from his book. But I could keep going on the books. So I'll stop there. <laughs> going to say, I'm going to have to stop by and check out all of your books. Uh, but for any of you listening, we'll have links to all of the books that Randy just recommended in the show notes. So I know myself, I'm definitely going to put them on my list. And one of the things that I do too, is a lot of times I get my books from the library. I borrow them from the library. Oh, nice. That way I read it. And if it's something that I think, oh no, this is a keeper that I'm going to have to go back to every year, then I'll actually purchase it. But sometimes I'm like, okay, that was good. I got what I needed, bye, and I'll just send it back to the library. But I just, as we wrap up again, Randy, I just want to thank you for being a guest on our podcast and for talking about conflict and sharing some of your strategies. And I really appreciated, especially your thoughts on mediation. And you are so well-trained in conflict management and mediation my first thought when you were talking about all that was where did you find the time to do all of this, to get all of this training? And you've been working on this for a really long time and I really appreciate you. So thank you for being here. Really happy to be here. I always enjoy our conversations and this I was know. fun for me. Uh, I get to share a little bit about what I do. Thanks so much, Randy. And for yeah. those of you who are listening, 
I just want to thank you for doing your part to stop the cycle of bullying in healthcare. Remember, the way we treat each other is just as important as the care and services we provide. Take care. Thank you for listening to Coffee Break, breaking the cycle of bullying in healthcare one cup at a time. If you found these practical strategies helpful, we invite you to click the subscribe button and tune in every other week. For more information about our show and how we work with healthcare organizations to cultivate and sustain a healthy work culture free from bullying and incivility, visit healthyworkforceinstitute.com. Until our next cup of coffee, be kind, take care, and stay connected.